Boagworld.com is produced by headscape.co.uk and supported by getsignoff.com. In this week's show, we talked to Patrick Lorkey about WCAG 2 and we discussed the perils of blindly following web conventions. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Hi, Paul. How are you? Hello, Paul. Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul and Marcus. Hello, and welcome to the first ever BoagWorld.com podcast. Hello and welcome to the 120th episode of BoagWorld.com, the podcast for those involved in designing, developing and running websites on a daily basis. Joining me, as always, is Marcus Lillington. Hello, Marcus. Uh, hello. How are you, everybody? That is the worst impression of Marcus Lillington. You weren't even trying, Rob. Um, well, I've been playing in a band a lot this week. <laughs> um, I, I'm a fantastic rock star, and, and my guitar's great. <laughs> Yeah, so Mr. Beardy is off um, doing um, some, I don't know, consultancy. He's actually working for a living for once. That's impressive. So joining me in his place is Rob. Hello. How are you? Good to have you back on the show, Rob. I don't think you've ever co-hosted before, though you have been on it a number of times. Yeah, I'm not sure. Is this a promotion or am I just being kept out of the office? I think really taking over Marcus's role is pretty much a demotion. Uh, Yeah, okay, fine. It's just the way things go, unfortunately. (laughs) So yes, we, Marcus is away, but we are carrying on regardless, and no doubt it will be a far more competent show, and certainly the audio will be a lot better for a start. Which I, I've done well on that today so yes. far. Uh, Rob is in charge of the audio too, because I'm inept with such things. <laughs> so we'll see. It could all, I'm editing it, which could be very dangerous, but we'll survive. Um, the first thing I wanted to mention is um, a little bit of news about Get Sign Off, and I know that I have pimped it overly over the last few weeks, so I will keep this brief. But just to say that um, we are now in a point where we're um, uh, uh, starting a closed beta where there are a few invited people that were getting to check it out, mainly um, friends of mine from conferences and things like that. We've also released another video um, about some of the advanced features, in particular customization, how you can customize the client experience. But the reason I'm mentioning it is we're going to run a little competition. So if you fancy being one of the first people to beta test, get sign-off, um, then you can do so by taking part in the forum. So at boagworld.com forward slash forum. And what I'm going to do is over the next week or so, I'm going to keep an eye on the forum and I'm going to look for the five best discussion topics on the, on the forum and uh, I'm going to give the people that start those uh, discussion topics a free beta invite. So if you fancy getting a beta invite, then you're going to have to join in with the forum, which is cool. What constitutes the best discussion topic? Whatever the hell I want it to be. <laughs> so completely at Paul's discretion, basically. Yeah, so basically a forum topic along the lines of Marcus sucks and Paul's great is likely to get you a beta invite, I'm just saying. That sounds good. Should be the way. Okay, so um, I think that's all the preamble. We haven't got Marcus here to slow the show down today, so I think should move faster, which is a good job because I've got the longest interview in the world ever with Patrick Lorkey, who is a very clever guy but doesn't stop speaking. I can't wait. It was quite hard editing work. (laughs) (laughs) No, Patrick, we love you dearly, and it was a very good interview, but I'm just saying shut the hell up. (laughs) Okay, so here's the news. Our first news story today is um, about 
Internet Explorer. I'm sorry, it's a depressing subject, I know, and, and causes a lot of pain and misery to many people. Is that the kind of thing that the developers worry about, or do they just ignore Internet Explorer? We tend to ignore um, until we're told to fix it. <laughs> like all good designers. Kind of close your eyes and hope it goes away. Although now you've been promoted to project management, haven't you? So you've got to worry about things like that now. Again, this word promotion is being thrown around. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure about this. <laughs> no, neither am I, to be honest. But there you go. So, as we all know, testing an Internet Explorer is horrible for oh so many reasons. Not least is the fact that you can't run multiple um, versions of Internet Explorer on a single operating system. Um, in the past, there's kind of been a number of slightly bodged solutions. These include standalone versions of IE, which I never really trust. I know other people seem to, but I'm, I'm never 100% confident they actually work the same as IE natively. And there have been a few instances where people have been caught out by that. There's, um, I guess, online services that provide screenshots of sites working in IE, but that's not look good because it doesn't really give you a sense of any interaction or, you know, give, no good for JavaScript or stuff like that. So the only really feasible solution is to run multiple operating systems as virtual PCs, which, let's face it, is slow and inconvenient. However, it looks like things are about to change. So um, there's these guys called Debug Bar that have just released something called IE Tester, and it's a free web browser that allows you to um, have the rendering and JavaScript engines of IE8 Beta 1, um, IE7, IE6, IE5.5, um, and it works on both Vista and XP, which is pretty cool. Not so good for us Mac users, but generally pretty cool. I, I don't. So do we know it works? The initial reports are positive. <laughs> let's put it like that. I, I really struggle to believe that this could work. But yeah, my understanding was it's all wrapped up in the operating systems. Well, right? it is, but, they, yeah. you know, there are clever people around. You okay. underestimate. Fine. I'll, I'll remain a skeptic. I'll have to give it a go. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's kind of my point of view at the moment. It's supposed to be alpha software. Um, whatever that means, basically, it means <laughs> it doesn't work. work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, so it sounds like it's still a work in progress. But I don't know. It sounds quite good. I'm, certainly, my my attitude towards it at the moment would be, yeah, I'm happy to use it, but I'm certainly going to want to pass it through the real op, the real you know Internet Explorer before I make it live. But I'm, you mm. know, for the development process, it might help. We got to hope it works because using virtual PCs is a real pain. It so. sucks, doesn't it? Right. So there you go. I'm going to be trying it out soon, and uh, even though it doesn't run on a Mac, but we can forgive it that, I guess. Okay, um, next news story. So this is an announcement by Google that may interest you, Rob, actually. So what Google have said is they're going to start hosting all of the main JavaScript libraries. So jQuery, Prototype, Script, Scripturelist. I can't even say that. Scripturelist. No, I can't say it. Try again, though. It's quite funny. No, I'm not going to try again. Mutools <laughs> um, and Dojo. So they are hosting all the big libraries, um, which means that if you um, use a JavaScript library, you don't host it on your own machines. You rather connect to theirs and pull it directly from Google. Now, my initial reaction was, you know, so what kind of, what does that mean? Why, why do I care? Well, mainly it appears to be in, uh, improvements in performance. Um, according to people that are much cleverer than myself, the Google servers apparently are faster than mine. I'm very disappointed that our hosting environment's not as good as Google's. I'll have to work on that. I'll yeah, think. if you could, that'd be much appreciated. Um, so they can deliver these um, JavaScript libraries quicker. But it's not just to do with um, a server performance issue. The, uh, the main reason seems to be that... Um, 
if enough web developers are doing this and they're all using the uh, libraries being pulled from the same source, they're going to get cached, which has got a huge advantage suddenly mm-hmm. because it means that, for example, I've set this up already on Headscape and Boag World. So if somebody's visited Boag World, then they'll already have jQuery when they then visit the Headscape site, so it downloads instantly. You're looking very, sceptical very again. No, no, no. I'm trying to process this exciting new information. Uh, is that what it is? It is, yeah. Um, there are obviously some problems with this. Um, it does require a certain level of trust in Google. A, that Google isn't going to go down, which, let's face it, is pretty unlikely. Yeah. B, that they don't turn evil, or more specifically, some individual with access doesn't turn evil and start injecting all kinds of code into your site, which they could do once they've got you know JavaScript yep. in there. Um, and also um, C, which is probably my biggest concern, that suddenly... They've got loads of stats about about you know the, the number of times that file's been pulled down from your site. So they've got all kinds of information about levels of usage on your site. Yeah, there, there is an evil wing to Google which wants to know everything about you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and this is yet another way where they achieve that. However, I have to say that I think, to me, the benefits outweigh the negatives. The idea of, of downloading those libraries quicker has got to be a good thing, isn't it? Mm, it's certainly a very good concept. Um, it is. It's interesting. I mean, I don't know how much you've used um, Google Analytics, um, but often when you're using Google Analytics, it, it, it can slow the page down yeah. in the load because you're serving it from mm. from Google server. So it would be interesting to do some tests on the, on their claims as to it will always be quicker. Yeah, I mean, it, that's a fair point. But that's true when you're downloading the file every time, which you are with Google Analytics. But with this, hopefully, it you know the user is only going to be downloading it once, so there will be a hit the first time. But after that, it's cached. Yeah, true. So I'm I'm pretty in favour. I'm mm. running it for now, and we're, we're seeing what happens. Yeah. And it seems to be fairly speedy so far. I've not noticed any difference. So. Very nice. Not that I really follow things that closely, it has to be said. (laughs) Okay, next news story is um, a tutorial that has appeared about a quick and easy way to prototype um, complex web interactions. That sounds really arsy, doesn't it? Really pretentious. So you didn't write that, did you? No. Well, yeah, I did, actually. (laughs) I did. That isn't lifted straight from their website or anything. (laughs) So uh, the problem is, right, here's the problem. So... Photoshop is normally the way you mock up designs, right? You produce a design in Photoshop, you pass it to the client, the client sees it. Great, wonderful, super. But more and more websites now are requiring a higher level of interaction that, you know, there's more interactive elements, sort of Ajaxy and fancy stuff whizzing in and, you know, all that kind of pretentious crap. Um, and so it's becoming harder to convey the look and feel just through static um, images. So um, basically, we need to come up with something that enables us to demonstrate this functionality. Now, we've spoken before about wireframing interactive websites, um, but not necessarily how to demonstrate changes in the visual look and feel. So this article, which appears on the Boxes and Arrows uh, website, suggests that flash may be the answer. Sharp intake of breath. (laughs) Um, The advantages that flash has over, say, something like a clickable PDF is it allows easier updating when the client wants to make a change. You can just drop in a new image while it's a bit fiddlier when you're doing it in PDF format. Um, However, this does require some basic action script skills, which I can't say I'm very hot on, but I'm sure other people are. Fortunately, the tutorial talks you through this step by step, and so none of it appears too challenging, even to a flash ignoramus like myself. Um, so if you're looking for a better way to demonstrate interactivity and your di- design comps, then maybe this might be the answer. So 
that's that one. So I was speeding through. It's amazing how much quicker things are without someone constantly interrupting me. Uh, shall I interrupt more? No, 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 it's fine. Okay. okay. It's good. You, you hit the level perfectly. People have been complaining quite a lot about, uh, about Marcus's constant interruption of my genius. Right, so just about Marcus in general, is that? Yeah, I, I like when he's away. The other thing that they're complaining about a lot is, is this stupid, he's got this new bit that goes in between the sections. <laughs> World of Boag. Right. Yeah, I listened to that the other day. It's so bloody annoying. It's a bit strange. So do you know what? Because I'm in control today. We're the, going back to the old one. The editing power. Maybe we should have a vote. Maybe we'll that could do. be like one of the forum posts it that, that might win a prize. Yeah, it could do. Vote for your best musical interlude. Yes. Perhaps people ought to submit interludes. Oh, that's very exciting. Oh, just, you see, it's this dynamic it's, back I and know, forth. I, I just don't have this with Mark. There's a lot I mean, of creative juice flying right now. It's, it's wonderful. Okay, so our last news story of the day... It is another post from those lovely people at Smashing Magazine. We mentioned Smashing Magazine quite a lot, mainly because they gave us a lovely review. So we like them now. Oh, cool. They're our friends. Um, The article entitled, Applying Divine Proportions to Your Web Design. If you thought the last stuff was RC, (laughs) nothing compared to this. That's quite a claim, actually. Have you ever heard about divine proportions? I've not, no. Oh, I need to educate you. So divine proportions is also called the rule of thirds. Um, and it's got various other names as well. But it, it's this principle that there are certain reoccurring things within nature. Um, and it's all to do with pi, basically. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to go into it in too much detail because I'll show my ignorance. <laughs> but, but it is this principle that certain things are more aesthetically pleasing to us, kind of almost um, you know, biologically for some reason. And it's called the divine proportion because some people claim it's all to do with God and you know, stuff like that. Interesting. Which I wouldn't know. But oh, it's also called the golden ratio. That was the other name I was looking for. So if you haven't come across the principle before, I highly recommend that you kind of read this Smashing Magazine article because it shows you how to kind of take that principle of thirds and apply it to web design and actually it's it's something that emerged in the renaissance it was kind of the renaissance period where they worked out this divine proportion but it obviously it's something that occurs heavily in nature already um and there seems to be something inherently pleasing about the proportions um and they occur again and again in all kinds of situations um so i think it's something about our human perception that that is drawn to them which is very useful if you want to kind of make something visually pleasing on the web as well it's used in photography and all kinds um so the article goes on to demonstrate how you can use the golden ratio um in all aspects of design from photography through to web design in particular it focuses on the benefits this can provide to things like grid structure now, admittedly, if you haven't come across the rule of thirds before, it all sounds like hocus pocus. <laughs> it's a bit of voodoo and pixie dust thrown in there. No, as well. it's true. It's <laughs> true. And it really does work as a principle. And why I like it so much is it's one of those kind of simple rules that you can learn. And whether you're a designer or not, once you know it, you can apply it. You know, there's all kinds of things like that. It was really interesting. Um, at Media, Dan Rubin was giving a talk about design details. And all, this, the, all the suggestions he gave, or a lot of them, were like simple rules that you just always use, you know, about consistent proportioning and, and all that kind of stuff. And once you've learned them, you can just do them. and You don't need to have any artistic ability. And I think a lot of the time there's a lot of kind of, you know, pretentiousness about art. You know, oh, you're either artistic or you're not. But a lot of it, a lot of being artistic is simply having a kind of inherent understanding of these rules 
But even if you don't have that inherent understanding, you can still learn them. So that's cool. It sounds a lot like that you're asking designers to know stuff about maths, and I'm sure I'm not really sure that's going to come together too well. <laughs> oh, that's harsh. <laughs> I know, I've just alienated 90% of, of the audience. Yeah. <laughs> so there we go. Um, on that bombshell, we will leave the news, and we will move on to our feature of today, which is um, defying conventions. Oh, yes, and enjoy the new interlude music. Bugrod.com. <laughs> Okay, so now to the feature section of the show. Um, right, yes, defying conventions. That's our subject for today. And, and this came, interestingly, out of um, some work I've been doing recently. And I'm sorry, I'm going to say it again. People get, I, I think it's going to become a drinking game. Every time I say get sign-off, people <laughs> ought to drink. Maybe we should do that while we're recording. Yeah, that'd make it a lot more entertaining. <laughs> so it was while working on get sign-off that this whole thing came at, um, about, which I'll cover later. And basically, it's the idea that as the web has matured, there's a number of conventions that have started to emerge um, but the question kind of arises, should we always conf- conf- conform? That's the word. Should we always conform with conventions or should sometimes we kind of go our own way? So um, I think the first thing I want to do before I go any further, before I get hate mail, to say, yes, I do believe in conforming with web conventions whenever possible. Um, but that would make a really short segment. <laughs> <laughs> Done. <laughs> yeah, finished. Always conform with it. But I, I have come to the conclusion that um, many times we conform blindly with conventions um, without thinking about the specifics of our site. Um, and and so I do think we need to be a bit more thought. But I, I want to kind of put the big caveat at the beginning because there are a lot of web designers out there that want to do something different because they're artistic and they want it to look cool and be, you know, original. I still like blinking text, to be honest. Well, yes, there are some conventions that will never be broken. So, um, so yes, people have certain expectations of a website, from placing search in the top right to ensuring that links are underlined, it's wise to observe these kind of emerging trends. However, a bigger crime than ignoring web conventions is to kind of follow them blindly. Um, And I I really want to encourage people to take time to consider each convention before you apply it and ask if your circumstances or audience um, should make you reconsider. So take, for example, the commenting system on getsignoff.com. There's a very definite convention that exists about commenting Um, but the question is should you always follow that convention so the norm of uh, commenting is that you put the post or the content or whatever it is at the head of the page and that's followed by your comments the oldest comment first all the way down the page till you end up with the comment box at the bottom with the most recent comment above it right that's what you see on blogs for i think so yeah okay so um, the new comment, when you complete, uh, you complete the tech, uh, comment box, then the new comment that you uh, submit appears immediately above the comment box at the bottom of the comment list. Now, this is so common that we don't even question it. After all, it's found on pretty much every blog site out there. All, all the forums out there work like this. Photo sharing sites like Flickr work like this, and even sites like Basecamp work like this great idea very sensible all the rest of it with so many examples of it working you kind of just accept it as best practice however let's take a step back and ask well why is it like that so the traditional layout of commenting makes a lot of sense in in some ways for a start it's chronological the post or the comment is your original and oldest piece of content and then it, it works down the page with newer and newer content till you reach the bottom um 
so basically they appear in chronological order all down the page. Um, it also is an approach that encourages users to view previous comments before placing uh, a comment themselves. So as you scroll down, you see everything that's gone before before you place a comment. And this is particularly important in a forum, say, where you can easily find repetition of the same people saying the same thing again and again. But does that mean that commenting should always be done that way? Um, I would say not necessarily. And in the case of Get Sign Off, we've decided not to do it that way. The traditional approach to commenting works on the assumption that the commenter has not read all of the previous comments that have been posted um, and hasn't been following the conversation in any detail. However, that's not true in every situation. For example, in the case of Get Sign Off, the comments are a conversation happening between two or more parties. It's not a series of individual comments, but a dialogue in which all the participants are fully invested and kind of fully involved in. Um, that is why we felt it was unnecessary to force users to scroll past all of the other comments before being able to post a comment themselves. So in our approach, we've taken the comment box and we've moved it to directly below the design um, or the concept that's you know, being shown. And then the comments appear in reverse chronological order. In other words, the newest at the top and then down the page. So this makes it easier to add a comment um, and to view the most recent additions without having to scroll to the bottom all the time. It also places the concept and the comment box on the same screen, which makes it a lot easier if you, what you're commenting on is the concept. So the moral of the story, well, basically, other than an excuse to raise get sign off again. <laughs> we do need a sound effect, don't we? Every time you say it, we just go ding. Yeah, or get sign off, get sign off in an echoey voice. That could work as well. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> Oh, dear. Uh, yeah, so there was a reason behind it other than just raising it. It's simply to stress that although conventions are good, we don't, we don't need to be following them blindly, but we need to consider the individual circumstances, and we need to avoid, I guess, designing on autopilot. So there you go, a little bit um, of my thought for the day. <laughs> I, I could do that, Radio 4 show, thought for the day. I like that, yeah. Then, we could, then Marcus could write another little interlude. Yes, more annoying music. So, okay, let's move on to some proper and grown-up content in the form of an interview about WCAG 2. Nothing more exciting than web accessibility. So joining me today is Patrick Locke from splintered.co.uk. Is that the best way to refer to you? Yeah, it's one of my many monikers, yes. You're just so many presents on the web. You're just so well-known. Good to have you on the show, Patrick. It's been a while. No, thanks for having me. I don't think you've actually been on Boag World before. If you've done .NET with me, but I don't think you've done Boag World. Exactly, yeah. I've only had the pleasure of sitting on the .NET one. Well, this is the proper grown-up, you know, professional version compared to oh, .NET. super. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the reason I wanted you on the show, Patrick, um, I, I have to be honest, is as much for me as it is for my listeners this time round because... Um, you are our resident um, accessibility expert, um, and we had a conversation a long time ago um, on the show about WCAG 2, and we talked a little bit, not, not you with yourself, but we've talked on the show before about WCAG 2 and that it was coming along and all the rest of it. But it suddenly occurred to me we haven't done anything on it for ages, and I am wholly ignorant on the subject in the current state of affairs. So I thought, I know, I'll get Patrick on the show. I'm sure he's bothered to read it and knows what's going on. Hence you're here. Excellent. 
So you're not going to let me down. You have actually read WCAG 2, have you? I have. I've oh, been that's fairly good. involved with it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good. That's encouraging. Okay, so perhaps the best place to start is where's it currently at? What's, what's the stage of development at the moment? Right. Well, literally uh, a few weeks ago, it entered what's called the candidate recommendation uh, stage. Mm. Uh, part, or part of that W3C terminology they use. It, wasn't, it has been in last call for uh, about two years now. But yeah, candidate recommendation uh, really means that now the, the WCAG working group and uh, the general public who's been kind of sending in comments, etc., on the, the status of the document, they, they, they've all reached kind of a broad consensus about, yeah, it's fairly much, it's pretty much uh, there, you know, it's fairly accurate. Technically, uh, there's no big howlers in the actual wording of the things. I mean, there might still be a few minor, minor details that uh, change from now until the end, but pretty much the actual core of it is as good as it's going to get. Okay. And really, the, uh, the, the kind of the purpose of this candidate recommendation stage, you know, why, why aren't they going straight uh, out and releasing this now uh, as, a, as a standard? It's really to give people uh, an opportunity to start test driving, you know, what WCAG 2 says in its current state. Uh, so uh, working group things, it's pretty much there. Let's test it out actually in the real world. So give people the opportunity to run it, run it, uh, run their websites through their paces according to WCAG 2. See if you know things are feasible. If uh, it's realistic to to kind of say, yeah, this will be the standard from now on. Uh, and uh, they've actually they, they want to make it quite official. So if you have an intention of uh, kind of doing that. You have a website and you want to actually officially say, okay, I'm going to use that website uh, to test WCAG 2. Uh, they're now asking for uh, people to basically register their interest and uh, to actually, you need to then implement that. You need to say, right, I'm going to run WCAG 2 on my site and by the 30th of June, uh, you want to be able to basically say, right, I've finished it uh, and then give feedback and basically say, yeah, no problem or uh, you know, we tried and tried, but this is actually not realistic. It might need to be modified. So, but unless there are major, major issues that come out in the wash as people are now trying to actually implement it and test drive it, uh, it should be fine, really. One of the main things uh, with WCAG 2 is, uh, as with any kind of candidate recommendation uh, documents, is really that there are a few items where even though we got consensus, the working group isn't 100% sure that they're going to make it in their current stage. So they've kind of oh. gone very ambitious with some of them, but they realize that, yeah, it might not actually make it through. And they're called, uh, quite fittingly, items at risk, which in the latest uh, CR document, candidate recommendation document, they're clearly marked. And they're basically, the testing phase is really uh, about, let's have a look, specifically these uh, kind of uh, items at risk can they actually be implemented in the kind of more stringent way that we've worded them? If not, we might have to scale them back. I mean, there are, there's one, that, for instance, where it says, it talks about, you know, color contrast, and they've worded it currently that the contrast needs to be in, on a ratio of five to one. So if you say, got you know, text and background colors, you need to have, once you do your calculations with the various algorithms, there needs to be a contrast of five to one. Mm. Now, they've put that at risk because uh, some people still felt that it might be a little bit, setting the mark a little bit too high. And they're already saying, okay, well, if it turns out that it is uh, too 
ambitious to say, right, you need to have that ratio, that they're happy to kind of jump back to 4.5 to 1 or even 4 to 1. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of things like that. We're really now at the nitty-gritty stage uh, with these kinds of things uh, of saying, you know, can it actually be implemented? So this is getting very close to the point where, you know, your average website owner and your average web designer needs to be, we need to be looking at this now, don't we, really? I mean, we're getting yeah, that close. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like things have gone a long way since the kind of early stages where, where WCAG 2 was quite heavily criticised. I mean, what kind of shape do you personally think it's in at the moment? And yes, uh, I mean, looking back at, <clears throat> I think it was May 2006, uh, where Joe Clark wrote his uh, kind of vitriolic post to, to hell with Wukang 2 on the list of parts, uh, we have definitely come a long way since then. I think it was, uh, it was a good wake-up call back then uh, for somebody like Joe, uh, somebody of Joe's stature to really come along and... Uh, where web designers maybe at that stage weren't really that interested in WCAG 2 to actually say, look, guys, you need to start looking at this because in the current shape it's in, it's really not feasible. And what Joe said at the time, I mean, that there are, there are many things that he criticised, but, you know, overall he was, he was spot on with, with a lot of the things. I mean, the main thing was that the whole document at that time was extremely bulky. It was one big monolithic document which tried to do everything. Uh, there was loads of Orwellian-style language there. Everything <laughs> was, was made up of new terms that they pretty much invented. Uh, because the problem with WCAG 2, to kind of foreshadow a bit, is that because it tries to be technology agnostic, it tries to avoid in the main document to talk about anything relating to actual technology. So it doesn't mention HTML, specific HTML elements or things like that. Right. So to make it very tech agnostic... Uh, that document at the time really redefined almost anything. So it didn't talk about web pages, but it started talking about web units. And uh, basically the glossary was almost bigger than the actual document. So, you know, that was very problematic because even people who have been doing web development for years, if you just gave them the document as it was, they would, they would have had to completely relearn whatever mm. uh, all the terms were. So it, it wasn't of no practical use. So is all that uh, gone now? Uh, yes, yes. The language has been simplified. Uh, I mean, it's, it's gone now from 2006 onwards. It's gone through, I think it was two or three last call uh, stages. Well, it went back from, in 2006, it was at last call stage, which is literally the stage before we're saying, OK, we're, we're up to candidate recommendation. They actually scaled that back uh, W3C don't admit that it, it was because of Joe Clark. And, okay, it was probably not uh, exclusively because of his article, but I think the general kind of feeling that it stirred up or that it tapped into kind of made the W3C reconsider. They scaled it back to a public working draft, which is kind of one step uh, previous to that. Mm -hmm. Everybody had a pretty good look at it. There, there's been rounds and rounds of comments. I mean, I've submitted... Uh, in the in the two year period that uh, it's now been uh, since that article, I've submitted loads of comments. I mean, ranging from really small things like "oh, you missed a comma there" or "that's not quite clear" to kind of very substantial things about the actual core concepts that are being discussed. Uh, and in that process, a lot of really hard copywriting and editing has, has happened since then. They've also split out the document into far more manageable uh, sub documents themselves. Uh, one of the main things, for instance, is that the whole structure of, you know, WCAG 2 is actually a suite of documents. The main 
guidelines document itself is only a handful of pages. I think it's yeah, 19 pages I've printed out today. Uh, that is purely the core uh, guidelines document, and that's the only part, if you will, that is actually normative. That's the only one that is the actual guidelines. Mm-hmm. Then there's a lot of extra documents that really are just what's called informative. So you can read through them, but you can't actually refer to them in terms of you know justice. If somebody says your site is inaccessible, you can't point to an informative document and say, yeah, but I'm following that particular thing. Okay. I mean, one of the documents will be the techniques document. Uh, you can't actually point to that and say, well, I'm following these because the only thing that's important are the actual guidelines. So they've really slimmed it down, broken it up into separate documents, uh, you know, 19 pages printed out. Uh, it's nothing. You can pick that up. You can read it through. It's roughly the same size now of WCAG 1, if you will. So they simplified the language. There were loads more contentious kind of fundamental problems uh, with uh, WCAG 2 as it was back in May 2006. I mean, one of the main ones that really caught, uh, you know, the, the eye of a lot of developers was the concept of baselines, mm. where basically at the time they were saying, even though the, the concept itself is good, but it pretty much read like, uh, as a website owner, I can basically say, right, to, re- you know, to work with my site, you need to have Flash, and you need to have this, and you need to have that, which was completely opposite to you know the, the very austere WCAG 1, which basically said you can't have anything. This seemed to open it up completely and uh, allow for, for website owners to basically say, right, you know, we are going to do a whole web Flash website, if you will, and your, our baseline will be you need to have Flash to use this site. The, the concept was good at the time, but the wording uh, pretty much came out like that. So these kinds of things, baselines, at its core, is actually still in the current document. They basically reworded it and turned it on its head, whereas be- where before it was talking about website owners can say what technology they're using. Now it's far more if, as a website owner or designer, I'm using a technology, I need to make sure that I know for a fact that it's supported by accessibility, uh, assistive technologies, uh, yeah. for instance, screen readers. So they kind of turned it on their head. It's not the onus isn't anymore on the user to, say, to, to have the latest technology, but on the developer to make sure that the technology they use needs to be uh, accessibility supported. So loads of kind of fundamental changes like that have happened, really. And uh, no, definitely, to go back to the original question, it has improved quite dramatically uh, since uh, May 2006. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've now familiarized myself extensively with this. It's good uh, bedtime reading material. <laughs> I'm uh, not, you're not convincing me of that one. Not unless no, I, no. I want to go to sleep, I guess. <laughs> I know. Okay, I'll be blunt. It's better toilet reading. You kind of print it out and you put it there. Instead of a novel, you've got that there. But it is very good. I mean, it's now down to the level of it's, it almost reads like common sense. You kind of you go through it and you just find yourself nodding and thinking, right, it's, that's not contentious. Okay, there's still a few here and there where I might slightly disagree in a heated argument. But overall, there's nothing really that, that makes me think, oh, no, that's never going to be realized. So absolutely, it's, it's, it's in very, very good shape, I would say. And this candidate recommendation stage looks like it's going to be very successful, really. And uh, fingers crossed, I think, I'm not 100% sure now of the timelines that W3C are working by, but I wouldn't be surprised if, say, by the end of calendar year, we might see uh, actually WCAG 2 being released, kind of getting out and becoming a, a proper recommendation.
Cool. So then what's the what's the big differences from WCAG 1? I mean, with WCAG 1, um, you know, I, every kind of standards-based designer became very familiar with that. Um, I was a great fan of that, that you know, single sheet which listed it, everything by priorities, and I would go through and I'd check myself off. And I kind of knew where I stood with WCAG 1. With WCAG 2, it, it's much more of an unknown entity at the moment. So kind of give me the, the potted version. Where are the big changes Right. No, but you're quite right that it's actually a lot more vague of WCAG 2, but it's it's that way for a reason. Right. So WCAG 1 really was uh, very much, I mean, it's, it's a product of its time. I mean, it was uh, 1999. Uh, the web was still quite in its infancy. Uh, and it is very much HTML focused, WCAG 1. There's no, there's no denying that. There's a few mentions of things like CSS. Uh, but pretty much it, it's all about how to use HTML to create content that at the time would be deemed accessible. Uh, I mean, JavaScript was uh, pretty much bad. I mean, you could use it, but you need to make sure that there's a fallback. Non-W3C technologies were, were completely out, basically, unless you provided a, a W3C alternative. So things like Flash and PDF, etc., when they first started uh, becoming more and more used, that directly clashed with uh, WCAG 1 at the time. Now, WCAG 2, as I mentioned before, it's far more tech agnostic. It tries to uh, basically not talk about specific technologies. It doesn't uh, directly reference HTML or CSS or Flash or Flex or various other things in the actual core guidelines. Uh, now, the reason for that is WCAG 1, uh, as soon as it was released, there was actually the thought behind it was that it will be updated on a very regular basis. But from 1999 onwards, nothing has really happened. Mm. And uh, because it was so heavily influenced by the technology of its day, it aged very, very badly. I mean, nowadays, uh, if I hear people saying we're building uh, against WCAG 1, you know, I almost have to chuckle a bit because it is pretty much just going back to, you know, we're doing the web like it's 1999. <laughs> you, you're not really allowed to do anything, and it's completely uh, opposite to what's actually happening with the web. I'm not going, well, I'm going to say web 2.0 uh, to sound all trendy, but, you know, all those things, Ajax, Flash, PDF, etc. Particularly, say PDF. There, there is now, uh, there are now easy ways or relatively easy ways to create reasonably accessible PDFs. I mean, the technology itself has moved on, the format has moved on. Screen readers are quite capable of dealing with uh, well-structured PDFs that are created in a certain way. Uh, we're not really talking about, you know, you need to test your pages with links because, you know, people might just use a text-only browser. Things have moved on, but WCAG 1 is, is pretty much uh, kind of frozen in time of 1999. There, there have been a few kind of people who have been working towards WCAG 1 have started kind of reinterpreting it a bit for the modern days. I mean, in my own practice, in, in my one of my other identities, in my day job as a web editor for the University of Salford, I've never actually said uh, we're going to make our pages WCAG 1 compliant but always said, you know, we're going to take inspiration from WCAG 1, filter it through our own knowledge of what the technology landscape actually is today, uh, and try to do the best we can to actually serve the users and, you know, how they currently use the web. 
So, so are you, you know, you said that you never claimed in your day job, you know, to be WCAG 1. Are you intending, you know, are you more confident in WCAG 2 to be able to say that, that we're going to be WCAG 2 compliant, or is it not that kind of thing? I think, uh, I think yes, WCAG 2, uh, it will be a lot easier to say we're working towards WCAG 2, because to kind of uh, go back a bit and explain WCAG 2's uh, kind of the thinking behind WCAG 2 and how it's structured, WCAG 2, as I said, doesn't talk about HTML or CSS. It really just sets out uh, very general principles, uh, which then break down into guidelines, which then in turn break down into success criteria. Now, again, it's, it probably sounds like there's, there's a whole new language to learn, but it is fairly straightforward. So if you think web pages themselves need to be the four principles, they need to be perceivable, operable, understandable, and robust. Okay. So those are the four kind of guiding principles, which, you know, makes sense. You know, it's, uh, it was already implicit in WCAG 1, but this kind of just spells it out. Th- these are the kind of four things that we want to make sure. Now, under each of those principles, say perceivable or whatever, there are guidelines which still provide, they don't go into detail, but they provide some very, very basic uh, overall goal. So what we want to achieve is X. Uh, they're not testable because they're still very, very generic. They're saying we just want to make sure that people can, say, use a keyboard to do things. They don't go into detail about what the, what that means mm-hmm. particularly. Then under that, you've got the, the testable, what, they call, what are called success criteria. Now, these are very small kind of little atomic uh, sentences, if you will, that say, right, very specifically, if you're providing this, then make sure that that happens. Now, okay. I'll, I'll pull out an example. I've made some notes here. Let me just go through. Yeah, I'll give you an example here. Uh, so in the big WCAG uh, 2 document, we've got principle number two, operable. User interface components must be operable. So, you know, you can't argue with that. Fair enough. Underneath that, there's loads of guidelines. Uh, I've pulled out one here, guideline 2.4, navigable, uh, which states that you should provide ways to help users navigate, find content, and determine where they are. Again, that's a very, very broad goal Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't say anything about you need to use a link, you need to put title in here, or you need to make sure you use access keys. None of that. It basically Mm -hmm. just very generically tells you that. Now, under guideline 2.4, there's loads of smaller success criteria. Now, I'm just going to pull out one of them, the first one, 2.4.1, which basically is called bypass blocks. And I'm just going to read it straight from the thing. A mechanism is available to bypass blocks of content that are repeated on multiple web pages. Yeah. Now, again, this doesn't say anything about HTML or whatever, but it is quite testable. You can actually pull up your web pages and say, right, are we following this? Is there a mechanism available to bypass blocks of text, uh, blocks of content, sorry, that are repeated? Uh, so I don't know if that gives a flavor of yeah, you know, it does. against WCAG 1. Now, you couldn't write a validator to, to actually just run through this and check for that. That is one of the core differences, I think, uh, with WCAG 2 compared to WCAG 1. I mean, even WCAG 1, we all agreed that you can't just run it through Bobby, and then, you know, if Bobby gives you the thumbs up, that's good. You still have to do some manual checking. But there were a lot of things that, uh, because it was so HTML-centric, you could pretty much run it through something, and it gave you a fairly good indication of whether you were achieving that particular checkpoint in WCAG 1 or not. 
Now, the, the, the way the success criteria are worded, yes, you could say, okay, if we accept that, we want a skip link, and the skip link will uh, fulfill that particular success criteria. We could write an automated tester that just looks uh, for skip links, the presence of skip links, however you want to code that. But it's not to say that that is the only way in which you can pass that success criteria. Mm. The actual guidelines don't say exactly what you're supposed to do. They pretty much focus on the end result, and particularly uh, what I'm interested in, they focus on the end result uh, for the user for the most part. So it really puts the, the onus on the developer to understand these are the user needs, and this is the kind of very generic thing that needs to happen. You can then, from that success criterion, jump over to the techniques document, for instance, uh, which actually goes into detail. If you're using HTML, here's some of the ways in which you could achieve this success criterion, uh, and then you can test against those. But the techniques document is only informative. It's not uh, the be-all and end-all. You could follow whatever's said in there, or you could actually come up with something that's completely separate, is not cool. mentioned anywhere in the techniques, but if the end result to an actual real user is still okay, they can still bypass blocks of text that way, then that's fine. Which uh, is great because it, it kind of gives, gives people the freedom to innovate and come up with original ways of solving accessibility problems. Absolutely. And it puts, it puts the focus straight back on doing something that is good for the user rather than, right, we're just going to go and make sure that we tick that particular box because the guideline says we need to do X in HTML and, well, we've done it, so we're cool. This kind of forces you to actually think about uh, solutions. I mean, you, you, can, you can go into the techniques document and what, what's mentioned in the techniques document is pretty much they're tried and tested ways in which yeah, sure. uh, that situation has been solved. But so, you, you know, you can be, I'll say lazy, but, you know, you can get guidance from that uh, techniques document. But that's the important thing to know is it doesn't mean that you have to necessarily use mm. one of those techniques. And absolutely, you're right. This will stimulate a lot more creative kind of ways in which these success criteria can actually be met. Mm. And, and as I said, uh, it then applies to any technology. You could say, uh, right, I'm going to provide that functionality in Flash if I'm doing Flash, or maybe I need to do that in PDF or whatever. So it is a lot more open, which obviously is a problem if you're very uh, set in the ways of uh, I'm going to run it through a validator and I'm going to get a clear yes or no answer because you pretty much need either a lot of user testing to say, okay, are the users actually able to uh, do this particular thing that the success criterion says, or you get experts that kind of help you with that. And there, it's, it's a lot more likely that you're going to get two or three experts, and they might not necessarily agree on what's the best way to implement something. So that is kind of uh, the, not the problem, I would say, but the slight shift in mentality that uh, website designers and uh, website owners will have to make, that it's less easy to uh, make a very kind of cut-and-dry Yes, it's accessible. No, it's not accessible. I mean, it was problematic before. Now it could be even more woolly. Uh, so, which, which, you know, is is a bad, a bad thing in a way, but also a good thing because it it does fo force you really to focus on uh, the actual core of the problem rather than trying an easy way out and just implementing some markup that a guideline suggests. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can see how it potentially might create some legal problems further down the line. But, yeah. you know, it, it certainly gets people beyond that kind of ask covering checkbox mentality. 
um, which has got to be good. So it sounds like a lot of the time we're going to kind of be working um, as web designers on the success criteria level, where we're going through and we're making sure we, we conform with these various success criteria. What about um, priorities? Would CAG 1 have priority A, double A, triple A, or whatever you want to call it, priority one, priority two, priority three. I mean, did, you know, is there anything like that anymore or has that gone away completely? No, that's actually still there. At one point, there was a there was a bit of a change in terms of how it's going to be worded, whether you could achieve uh, full compliance or not by following, uh, you know, having to do all the success criteria for a particular level or not. But no, they're, they're pretty much there. Uh, in their old form, if you will. So they're, okay. they're still called level A, double A, and triple A. One of the things that WCAG 2 has tried to do in its wording of these levels is to say that uh, it, it wants to remove the kind of idea of hierarchy that double A aren't less important than A and triple A aren't less important than double A. They've, they've written a lot of uh, nice words around it to explain why uh, it's actually still worth doing triple A's when you're not fulfilling all of double A, etc. Okay. But I think they've actually muddied up the waters a bit because, in effect, you can't claim, uh, say, triple A if you haven't claimed double A. So the hierarchy is actually still there. So probably this explanation was quite confused, but it actually reflects exactly how confused the WCAG 2 <laughs> document is about that. They've, they've tried to kind of uh, have their cake and eat it at the same time, uh, I think, because they, they have to necessarily have some hierarchy, but they're really trying to stress that all, but they're all equally important, you know, but, but some are just more important than others. So <laughs> interesting. Yes. So, I mean, what, um, you know, we've got potentially, you know, if you're right until about Christmas to sort out our act and to kind of really get thinking about WCAG 2. What yeah. kind of steps would you recommend for um, for people that are owning and running websites in order to kind of prepare for this? Um, I would say that uh, because WCAG 2, as I say, is a, is a whole suite of documents, you've got the actual guidelines, which... Uh, I mean, now I can read them and they're quite understandable to me, but I'm obviously very close to the subject at hand. I can kind of understand where they're coming from. But as part of the suite of documents, there are kind of uh, better documents possibly to start with, depending on okay. what your current level is. Uh, there, are, there are simple things like understanding WCAG 2, which kind of take a, takes a helicopter view of uh, WCAG 2 and gives a lot more context that explains why uh, you know certain guidelines are important, how you know people are, will use them, how they will benefit from them, etc. Okay. So it gives more of a context. Uh, it's it's obviously a lot weightier than the actual core guidelines. But that if you if you're a bit rusty with uh, you know haven't looked at WCAG two at all, you're a bit rusty with what WCAG one even was about uh, beyond just being a document that you checked some boxes against. Uh, that's certainly worth reading just to really get the feel of uh, understanding why why are we changing things? Why wasn't WCAG 1 good enough? So that really gives you a good kind of introduction to the subject. And I think that that's, that's an important step uh, towards actually implementing WCAG 2 will be for people to buy in, as, as with anything, if you're trying to push it through at an organizational level, people need to understand the rationale behind it. You can't just dump this document on, on say, your developer's desk and say, right, these are the new rules. 
the you know white is black, black is white. This is what you need to do now. They need to buy in from actually understanding what the rationale behind it is. So the understanding document will uh, really give them all the information they need. <clears throat> Some uh, you know technically minded people might be tempted to jump straight to the techniques document which is fine, but uh, again, with a caveat that I mentioned before, that the techniques document is actually only informative. So whatever is written in there is not the law. Some techniques that are currently in there might even be proven later on to be uh, maybe not optimal in certain situations, etc. So it's not the law. It can help you initially get, if you're really technically minded, uh, you might read the, the success criteria and say, yeah, okay, that's all nice language, but what does it actually mean? You know, if I'm doing HTML, what, 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 what are you expecting me to do? Mm. The techniques document can help. It will give you actual examples. If you're using HTML, do this. If you're using uh, Flash, do that, etc. So it brings it back down to something that, as a techie, you might be more comfortable with. But again, uh, understanding that uh, that is not the law. Those are not the guidelines, and that there might be even better or more creative ways around the problems. But it, it will get you into the right frame of mind, I would say. Cool. Uh, there's also documentation that just pretty much compares WCAG 2 to WCAG 1. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, if you've got a lot of experience with WCAG 1, that will kind of help you uh, roughly map, you know, what used to be WCAG 1's checkpoint about this is now this far broader guideline that covers a lot more aspects. Uh, so it'll, it'll help you kind of move towards the, the, the thinking behind WCAG 2. And I think that is the main thing as a website owner or as a designer. It's more of a shift in perception, if you will, uh, if, uh, more of a shift of understanding of what accessibility is, uh, more than, uh, you know, ch the change of uh, how is my markup now going to be affected by it. It's really moving beyond that kind of very HTML-specific, you must do exactly this, to a more, you need to understand how users actually use your website and how to creatively kind of help them in, in that pursuit, really. Cool. I mean, that... That sounds good. There's lots of different ways you can kind of start the process of learning it, which, uh, which is, is good. Uh, I mean, I guess that the, my last question you've, you've almost kind of answered, which is, you know, if you're somebody from a, a WCAG 1 background that, that is comfortable with WCAG 1, the one thing that you're thinking is, oh, hang on a minute, I kind of knew this, I had my head around this. You know, why, you know, I've suddenly got to change to this new system. You know, is it going to involve more work? Is it going to be painful? The fact that you talked about this document that does the transition, you know, between WCAG 1 and WCAG 2 sounds helpful. Um, overall, do you think it's going to put more pressure on designers or is, you know, is more going to be expected of them as they develop stuff? Uh, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting uh, for a variety of reasons. I wouldn't say necessarily uh, there's going to be more work involved. If you've been working uh, similar to the way I've been working, that you take WCAG 1, you take what you want from it, and you filter it through your knowledge of, yeah, but current uh, screen readers can actually work well with PDFs. So I'm ignoring the non-W3C technologies are banned that used to be in WCAG 1. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you've actually been doing accessibility based on WCAG 1 in the real world rather than simply just following it as a set of checkpoints that you just tick the, uh, the boxes, uh, I wouldn't say it's going to be more work. Certainly if you, on the other hand, if you have been uh, somebody who hasn't been too uh, understanding or involved with WCAG, 
you pretty much had it as a function in your, say, dream, copy your dream weaver or whatever. I'll just quickly run it through this validator. Uh, I'll run it through Bobby, although Bobby's now gone, thank God. Uh, various things like that. You know, if you really just saw it as a, as a checkbox exercise, yes, there will be. Uh, it will be more of a, I don't want to say paradigm shift, but, well, there you go. I just said it. Uh, in, you have in terms no shame. Of, you know, that's it, absolutely. Uh, no cliche will be left unturned in this uh, particular episode. Uh, you really need to start understanding it more. But if you've actually been doing what I would term in a quite elitist way, real web accessibility over the last few years, there's no major, major uh, big surprises there, and there's, I wouldn't say there's a lot more work involved. Now, it will be interesting, I think, uh, one of the aspects will be uh, if you've been working in an organization and uh, you've been trying to appease management, say, and one of the things that management might have erroneously picked up is we need to make sure our pages are Bobby compliant, for instance. Yeah, it will. It, that will be a difficult, I would say, or challenging, shall we say, situation, because you will have to already at the time you might have been crying, saying, "Well, the validator can't check everything. You still need to do manual checks." But at the end of the day, to some managers, all they wanted was to see the the, the thumbs up and the smiling policeman with a helmet on their <laughs> website. This time around, it will be a lot more difficult. And um, Yes, as I mentioned before, there will be automated tools that will help you in determining whether you're doing certain things right according to WCAG 2. But because, uh, as I said, the techniques, uh, there is no definitive list of techniques that are okay, mm. uh, and there are defi no definitive list of techniques that aren't okay, it's practically impossible to write a, an automated checker that will, that will be able to check against everything. Uh, so tools, automated tools, will really just be relegated to certain interpretations of WCAG 2. I know that there's a few organizations in the States uh, that are currently working on uh, you know, validators. I think the uh, oh, name escapes me now. So. Uh, but yeah, the, the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany, uh, they're currently working on their own version of a WCAG 2 uh, accessibility tester, for instance. And I had a, an interesting discussion with representatives from Fraunhofer the other week when I was in Germany at a conference, uh, and they pretty much agreed that their tool will only check against, basically, their favorite techniques, if you mm. will, mm. from the techniques document. Now, who's to say, as we said before, that those are the best techniques? There aren't. You might come up with a really creative way that no tool has been has been primed to kind of sniff out in your markup or in your uh, flash or PDF or whatever. So you'll always get a very, very subjective, based on what the, the developers written into their tool, very subjective assessment of your mm. website. So to bring it back to the point, uh, it will be extremely difficult, I think, uh, for a manager to be able to say, right, I just want to make sure that we pass that particular test, unless you then go and, and dig out exactly what that tool is looking for and you end up back in the situation that we used to be in where you're trying to write it to to get a, a good uh, good grade from a tool rather than actually thinking about what is best for uh, you know users with disabilities mm. or users in general uh, so that i think that will be the more challenging part as i said the, the paradigm shift getting managers who might not have understood it up to now to really kind of confront the fact that automated tools aren't the be-all and end-all. And that, yes, everything is a lot more subjective now. 
so really, I would say the, the only solution to that is really start thinking more exclusively about uh, proper user testing, getting actual end users in there. Uh, you, you could give them the success criteria from WCAG 2 and basically say, can you confirm that this is something that you can do on our website? So it becomes a lot less about automation and a lot more about actual end users. Cool. I mean, it all sounds really exciting and, uh, you know, a bit apprehensive, you know, a whole new thing to learn and all the rest of it. But I think the whole freedom of approach uh, side of things that you can approach problems in different ways and solve things in different ways is very refreshing. And it all sounds really exciting. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show. That's been really enlightening. And I look forward to Yes, and I look forward to getting you on again, maybe to um, get into some specifics once WCAG 2 is up and running. Good yeah, to talk to you. Okay, so we are now at the listener feedback part of the show. Rob, have you ever got this far in the podcast or have you given up listening by now normally? I don't think I've ever listened to a podcast. You're kidding me. I don't not not completely. I might have listened to you bits bastard. of one when 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 maybe I've been on it because I like the sound of my own voice. But I'm hurt now. I wouldn't get hurt too much. I probably won't listen to another one ever again either. Well, then there to you <laughs> is all I can say. Right, okay. Well, then you're going to have to work. Uh-oh. So, um our first audio question um, is a question about the key features of a CMS. Hi, Paul. Hi, Marcus. What, in your opinion, are the most important and fundamental features of a CMS? Not such as the ability to create pages, but the add-on features that make a CMS better than all the CMSs around it. Thank you very much for answering my question. And it's pronounced Tyvian. Well, that really depends on what you want your CMS to do, I would say. Uh-huh. Um, because... This is really good, because <laughs> I gave you no preparation about this, did I, at all? No, not at all, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there's lots of off-the-shelf CMSs out there which obviously do everything and nothing, mm-hmm. um, because you need to work them out and, and you don't know what they do and they do lots of stuff that you don't know how it works and loads of stuff that you don't really need, because really all you want to do is edit text on a small part of a page. Um, so I think the first question is not whatever <laughs> your so question was. Now, you? It's actually what do I want my CMS to do? That's what. That's the question you need to ask, and then you can move on to your second question. <laughs> well, uh, yes, <laughs> very, very good. That was a good attempt, Rob. It wasn't I'm bad, was it? I'm actually gonna I'm gonna cop out of it as well because fortunately I've just got back from App Media, and there was a guy called um, Drew talking about. Um, your content management system and what you want from it. So, so he's kind of covered this. Interesting, his list of uh, recommendations of the things you should look for in a content management system was not what I expected. He went in a bit of a different direction. So, for example, he put down one of the things on the list is friendly URLs, right? Which is, you know, cool and useful mm. to have, but I wouldn't have put it as one of those prime things that you, you should include. No. But his logic was, and I like this logic, is that it shows that whoever's developed the content management system is kind of aware of latest techniques and that the content management system has been kept up to date and has kind of embraced these new things that come along. So it's not necessarily you want or need friendly URLs, but it's more what it tells you about the developer, which I thought was quite a cunning kind of thought yeah, process. Interesting signpost. So he also he had, he had things like data feeds and RSS, which is something that 
you know, I think he was focusing on things that not all content management systems have because mm. most content management systems have a fairly standard bunch, don't they? So data feeds was something. A customizable and accessible administration um, interface was something else. Well-implemented search. Now, that is a good one because most search on CMSs are crap, in my opinion. Yeah, once you've got a big CMS, you can never find your content again. Exactly, yeah. So um, mighty, m- mighty search? Well, My- that would be cool. <laughs> mighty, <laughs> mighty site support. Multiple site support, even. <laughs> oh, God. I like this concept of mighty site mighty, support, though. Mighty site. <laughs> no, multiple sites. Been able to support multiple sites. Mm-hmm. Multiple languages. Caching, he, he rated quite highly. Which I guess depends on the amount of traffic you're getting. You know? Yeah, it does depend on, on the sort of site that you've got. Yeah. Um, and also support for user-generated content, you know, whether it handles things like forums and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was, quite, it was quite an interesting presentation. And he also spoke in the presentation about the importance of not buying a CMS-based, um, a CMS with functionality that you don't actually need. Yeah. Because I think, like you were saying, a lot of people end up buying CMSs that are more complicated than they really require. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some senses, that's the problem with kind of off-the-shelf content management systems. You en- do end up buying functionality that you don't require, um, which it not only is more expensive, but introduces additional complexity into the user interface. And it's interesting that both Headscape and Edge of My Seat, which is Drew's company, have both chosen to kind of build their own CMS code base, which allows it to be customized specifically to clients' needs, which mm. I've got to say is an approach I'm quite keen on, really. Yeah, um, there are, I'm surprised there aren't more kind of code bases out there that aren't kind of promoted as complete CMSs that are quite hard to edit, but rather kind of a big heap of steaming code that you can do whatever you want with. You're probably going to get a long list sent into you. Now, yeah, I am. It turns out but that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. I'll post, post them um, as comments in the show notes. Oh, I haven't said where the show notes are, which is very robust to me. Bagworld.com forward slash podcast forward slash one two zero. In case you want to get to the show notes or tell me about big steaming piles of code. Yes. So it's, it's worth uh, it's worth I think sticking to the the male concept of shopping um when uh, when when looking <laughs> at forums which is basically work out what you want before you leave the house. Um yeah. if you are, if you know what the question is, you know what you're trying to solve, then then you're much more likely to not get ripped off or yeah, pick something definitely. that you don't want. Um, if you're interested in a bit more information on selection of content management systems, then be sure to check out episode 24. That's over a, almost 100 episodes ago. Wow. Um, well, we did talk about the subject, but probably it's moved along on a lot since then. I bet you had a lot more hair then, didn't you? Oh, shut up. That's <laughs> unnecessarily cruel. Okay, next question um, is about certification and comes from Chris. I've been working web design for the past five years and really looking to get more into the user experience side of things. I was wondering if you or any of your listeners knew of any qualifications or certifications that might be a good idea. Are they even worth the good idea in the first place or are they not worth the paper they were written on? Okay. Well, I would say. Oh, here, here we go. <laughs> I see yeah, I can walk like away. You know a lot one. about user experience well, qualifications. I'll, I'll approach it from the general certification point of view. Okay. Um, I, I would say it really depends on where you want to end up um, because some. <laughs> so hang on, that's exactly the same answer you <laughs> yeah. just gave for the previous I know. question. You can pretty much mix and match. In fact, this is only one answer. We're just cutting and pasting it around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I mean, some companies, especially I guess your, your big companies of this world, are going to want ways of differentiating their millions of applicants. Um, yeah. Whereas if you're not necessarily interested in taking that particular 
career path and maybe want to walk work for a, a smaller agency or yeah. or do something else then i think certification is probably less important yeah i mean i my my basic answer to this is don't waste your time <laughs> Um, you know, as somebody that regularly recruits, um, especially user experience people, actually, I, I've got to say qualifications and certification mean pretty much nothing to me. Um, sure, I like an employee to have a degree simply because it kind of demonstrates that they're not thick. Well, well Does actually, it, though? Yeah. Does it? <laughs> I'm not so sure about that anymore. No. <laughs> um, however, I don't think that web-specific qualifications count for a huge amount, to be honest. Um, whatever I consider, you know... What the things that I consider important are examples of work. That's that's the big one. I want to see see your skills, um, in, you know, demonstrated in some way. So I want to see sites that you've produced, um, and I want you to be able to explain to me the underlying concepts and thought processes that went into them. So, given a choice of say, I don't know, some work experience with a high profile web agency or becoming a student again, I definitely recommend the the former. To be honest. So there we go. That wraps up show 120. Thank you, Rob, for doing this with me. I much appreciate it. Completely my pleasure. And it's great to hear your standard stock answer for everything. That seems to be good. You can use that for when Marcus gets boring. Yeah, just yeah. insert your... Insert Bob's answer here. Yes. Now, of course, what we are missing is a joke because we don't have Marcus here. So I'll hereby announce that Marcus himself is this week's joke. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so there we go. That wraps up the show. Thanks very much for listening. Don't forget the um, Get Sign Off competition. So go along to the forum at boagworld.com forward slash forum and uh, get posting there. Show notes, boagworld.com forward slash podcast forward slash 120. Thank you for listening and speak to you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hello, world of Boag.